Thank you for downloading this podcast from Bromley Town Church. We pray this message will refresh and encourage you. For further information about Bromley Town Church, you can go to our website, www.bromleytownchurch.com. We're going to come to the Word of God. And we're going to let God speak to us. Amen. Shall we pray? Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, we bless and honor your holy name. We glorify you. We magnify you. We exalt you. There is no other king like you. You alone are the one who is worthy of all adoration, thanksgiving, and praise. Father, we come before you because we need you. We come before you, O Lord, because we want you. We're asking, O God, open the eyes of our hearts. Open the understanding of our minds. The Lord, that we may receive your word that your word will change us, your word will transform us, your word will instruct us and empower us, Lord, that we may go forth to do your works in this forthcoming week. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. Well, it's good to be back up here. I don't feel as though I've spoken for a few weeks or whatever, so it's great to be here. I'm going to start this morning by looking at uh, the first session to do with the prophet Elijah. Um, I'm sure many of you have read the story of Elijah in the scriptures and perhaps would have some understanding of it. If you've never read it, well, then perhaps tonight you can go home and read it anyway to be refreshed ahead of next week. But as we talk about it, as I preach about it, then I'm sure that we're going to gain a little bit more insight and understanding about this amazing man of God. Um, There's some things that you might remember about him. He is the guy who actually called down fire from heaven and destroyed the, uh, the worshippers of Baal. So that's a great thing about him, but I want to unpack a little bit more about his life and try to get a little bit more understanding of how he comes onto the scene. If you've been reading your Bible through from cover to cover or something like that, then you would have got to the book of Kings, and it's in the book of Kings that we come across this prophet Elijah. Perhaps if you want to turn in your Bible, if you have one, to 1 Kings chapter 17... We will start to read a little bit there about him. Don't worry, I haven't found it yet either. 1 Kings chapter 17. So if you have that in your Bible or on your iPhone or whatever, then I'm just going to read, I'm just going to read one verse actually. Nothing too much to start off with. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. Now, this is our introduction to Elijah. And as I say, if you have been reading through the book of Kings, it is almost, as you turn over from chapter 16 into chapter 17, it's suddenly, now Elijah. Well, where's he come from? What's all this about? I've just been reading about the kings of Israel and Judah, and now suddenly there's this introduction to this man. It doesn't even say he's a prophet. It just says, now Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. And all that means is that he came from a small village. He came from a small village of Tishbe, somewhere in the northern part of Israel. That's all it's telling us. So what's he doing on the scene? What is going on? Why does he suddenly appear? 
You see, we can press on and we can start to say, great, I know the big story, I'm going to get in and I'm going to find out what the end result is. Isn't it great? The prophets of Baal get destroyed. Hallelujah. But we need to understand, why has this guy suddenly come onto the scene? What is happening at this point in Israel's history that he suddenly appears and he is announced to us and here is this man, Elijah the Tishbite. I don't, I don't know, actually, I can't even recall in my mind whether I've seen many paintings of Elijah, but this guy is a serious man of God. He would be the guy that would have the big beard. He'd have a big stature. He'd have a big staff. He just seems to have authority stamped all over him. But why has he suddenly appeared as we turn over the page? And so today, really, what I want to do is to try to set the scene about why suddenly this man is being brought to our attention and we are understanding about him. So again, if you have your Bible, let's just turn back to chapter 16 of 1 Kings. And we're going to read there from verse 29, just to the end, just so that we start to get a little bit more understanding about Elijah, this great prophet. 1 Kings 16, verse 29, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king over Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He did not consider it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, son of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. So that gives us just a little bit of insight into what had happened before all this was coming on. So now, before Elijah bursts onto the scene, I want us just to turn back and ask just a couple of questions or ask a particular question so that we can help to unpackage this. The question is this, what were the problems of Israel in this time? Let me just explain something to you. We've come through the kings, we had David, we've had Solomon. After Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was divided up, ten tribes going towards the north, two tribes going down towards the south. So that is why as you carry on through kings, you're getting kings of Judah and you're getting kings of Israel. Judah was the southern area, Israel was the northern area. So when we hear about Asa, he was the king in the south uh, over, the two nation, over the two tribes uh, and he was looking after them. In the north, we'd just come from the reign of Omri, he had been overruling the tribes in the north and now that kingship had changed. So we've just got a change in dynasty. Well, not so much in dynasty because it's a family line, but we've got a change in kingship coming up as far as that's concerned. But what were the problems of their time? We can ask a similar question to ourselves right now. What are the problems of our time? Colin alluded to the fact there have been a few things going through Parliament. Well, whether that's just on issues of homosexuality and bills and all that sort of stuff, or whether it's to do with the financial crisis that we're going through. And if you hadn't noticed that we're going through a financial crisis, 
that even now the leaders of Europe are leading, trying to work out another trillion uh, or multi-trillion euro support package to support up French banks, to allow the government uh, or the nation of Greece to go into debt and to default on their loans. There's a huge amount happening around at the moment. So if we were to ask the question of ourselves, well, what's the state of the nation at the moment? We would start saying, well, we've got financial issues, we've got employment issues, we've got you know, all sorts of issues. That's the sort of thing that we might answer. Well, what are we going to ask then? Northern Israel, what is your problem? What's going on for you at the moment? And I want to unpack this in three ways. First of all this, the ways of God have become corrupted. The ways of God have become corrupted. 1 Kings 16.31 that we read, it says, Ahab considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Now, on first reading, it doesn't really mean an awful lot to us. In fact, if you'd read through, you would have noticed at one point that Jeroboam was one of the first kings of the northern area. But the problem with Jeroboam was this, he committed sins before God. Well, here, the new king of northern Israel is saying this. He considered it trivial. That's nothing. That's nothing. Well, what's nothing? What were the sins of Jeroboam that this, he was you know, not worrying about. Because unless we understand the sins of Jeroboam, then we don't even understand what this is talking about. So let's just take a little step back and look at Jeroboam. And I'm going to read to you from 1 Kings 12, verses 25 to 29. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. This is, let me just remind you again, this is literally after the divide of the 12 tribes Ten tribes are going up to the north. Two tribes are staying in the south. So this is, this is a, a, a separation, as it were, of government of the nation. So Jeroboam is now going up north to actually take over the governance of the northern tribes. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, that's up in the north, and he lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself... The kingdom is now likely to revert to the house of David. If these people go to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. Okay, now let me unpack this a little bit. What were the sins of Jeroboam? What is it we're looking at? The ways of God had become corrupted. What had this man done? You know, he was just a normal sort of guy. He was a guy who had stature and ability and it had been prophesied that he was going to take hold of this northern kingdom that had come to pass. Rehoboam, who was Solomon's son, had come into power, and Rehoboam was aiming to govern all the 12 tribes, carry on the dynasty of his father, and manage the great estate that was Israel at that time. But that didn't happen. The 10 tribes separated from him. They've gone north. Jeroboam is taking over those. Rehoboam is in the south, looking after the two uh, tribes down there. And Jeroboam has now gone north. The problem with going north is you're going away from Jerusalem. And if you remember, what's the key point about Jerusalem? 
Jerusalem was the place that God had declared, there shall my name be. And if you're going to worship, if you're going to sacrifice, wherever you live in Israel, when you hear the call, as it were, you come to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was and still is the focus city of the whole world. It still is. And it won't change because it is declared that is where God's name shall be. So you see, they were being called to Jerusalem. But Jeroboam's got a problem. He's a politician. He's having to sort the people out. What does he do? If we all carry on and go down to Jerusalem, they're going to get to Jerusalem They're going to remember Rehoboam. They're going to remember the old ways. They're going to want to get back under the old regime. He was feeling the insecurity of his new position. So what does he do? He takes some advice. He thinks about it. He tries to work some things out. And he thinks, like, this is ridiculous. Let's have a new scheme. Why should everybody have to go to Jerusalem? Let's make it easy for people. Let's build two places. In fact, he makes these two calf idols, and that that just doesn't compute to me, because you'd think like, well, nobody's going to take any interest in them. But they did. And so he establishes these two places, and they are places of sacrifice, and he says to all the northern guys, guys, we're in a new regime here. Everything's looking up. We're going to be excited. We're still going to carry on the things of God. Don't worry about that, but we're going to make it easier for you. How much do we find in our lives the desire even with the things of God, just to have it a little bit easier. I don't like getting up early to go to a prayer meeting. I don't like putting myself out to do this. Can we not just make it a bit easier? Would it not just make something that fits my life a little bit more? Don't we have that tendency? So you can hear now what Jeroboam is saying. He's saying to the people, we're going to set up these calf idols. We're going to give you a place where you can come and sacrifice. We're not closing down the adoration of God? No means. We are making it more available. We're increasing the work of God. Look what we're doing. Now when you start to hear it like that, you think like, actually that doesn't sound so bad. That's good. We haven't got... You know how much it used to cost us to get all the way down to Jerusalem. We're going to save that. In fact, I'll tell you what, we'll use that money to bring our sacrifices. That seems like a very good idea. We're going to get ourselves sorted out. So you can see how this was coming across to the people. So what are the sins of Jeroboam? He corrupted the worship of God. He disobeyed the word of the Lord. That's the first thing he did. If you're going to come and worship, if you're going to come and bring your sacrifice, you bring it to me. You bring your lives to me. You surrender yourselves by coming all the way down to Jerusalem. I've got a better idea, says Jeroboam. We're going to have it in Bethel. We're going to have it in Dan. I was just thinking, and this is just coming to me. Wasn't Bethel the place where the stone, where Jacob laid down, where the ladder was? Just feel the heart of God for a moment. There is the place where the ladder was seen. The angels of God ascending and descending upon the earth. And now there's a calf idol being put at that place. He had a place of significant historical attachment. But we can get taken in by these things. 
Folks, we need to keep our eye on the living God. What he says is what we need to do. There's plenty of voices in the world, plenty of people, plenty of politicians, plenty of leaders who are going to give us advice, and it's not always dumb advice, it can be what appears to be wise advice. But nevertheless, it is words that can cause us to corrupt the actual ways that God has got for us. And we too need to be wary that we don't get corrupted. Jeroboam corrupted the worship of God by instituting golden calves as objects of divine adoration. Are we elevating anything in our lives that becomes a golden calf? It doesn't look like a golden calf, but is that something that we're doing? Jeroboam not only did that, he changed the place of worship from Jerusalem, as I said, under the guise of convenience. Guys, this is easier. I'm going to make this more readily available to you. You're not going to have the same hassles. You are going to be able to get there and get all your sacrifices sorted out, and it's local. What more could we want? God is being lifted up. Not only did he do those things, he appointed priests from among the tribes other than that of Levi, a practice unauthorized since the law had spoken nothing about priests from Israel's other tribes. And he also altered the time of one of the Feast of, the feast of Tabernacles from the seventh month, the 15th day, 15th day of the seventh month, he moved it back a month. That's so what? You know, come on, lighten up sort of thing. Lighten up. You see, this is what you start to see when you read the Word of God. God has a way for us to walk in. And although our minds and our conversations with others, and we had a discussion and it seemed like a good idea, Jeroboam hadn't done this in isolation. He'd done it with his own thinking and with his consultation with people. And they'd all thought, this is a great idea. This secures your kingship. This enables freer worship. But here he is now. He's embracing anybody. Gosh, we need to have some more priests. We've got these two new altars. There's going to be lots of people there. Right, now who's going, who would like to be a priest? Anybody? Anybody? Come on. Sign up. Unemployment is going down. Employment is coming up because people can now join the priesthood. This guy is on a roll. He's not on a roll. As far as God in heaven who is concerned, God is looking down and saying, you have no respect for me. You don't come to me. You're now showing the people a form of religion and yet they have lost sight of you have corrupted the ways of God. And this is what had happened. What was one of the problems that was on the scene that Elijah breaks into? The religion of the nation had become corrupted. Could we raise the same question over our own nation today? Has the religion become corrupted? Has it? People hardly even know what the church stands for. The church itself has become so divided, so separated, so isolated, so unloving towards itself, let alone anybody else, that people are unsure. What is the religion? What are the ways of God? What should we follow? How can we work this out? They don't know. The ways of God have become corrupted. Second point. The ways of their leaders had become corrupted. 
Not only the ways of God and the religion that was being practiced, but the ways of their leaders had become corrupted. Omri had been king over Israel. He wasn't a great king. He did do some things. I think it was Omri that helped to establish Samaria as the sort of capital city. You know, where down in the, in the south, Jerusalem, that was the capital city. There was no problems. Everybody knew that that was the center of action as far as the southern tribes are concerned. But the north had lost their identity, particularly after Jeroboam and the straying away. They needed to find a new identity, so they built up the city of Samaria. And of course, we hear about Samaria, and we hear later on about the, uh, the jealousy and the, the difficulties that there are between general Israel and the people from Samaria. But Samaria was now becoming acknowledged as the, the northern capital city, the place where government was, the place where the action was. That became a center point. Omri had been one of those that established that. So in one sense, amongst the northern tribes, he'd done some great things. But again, it's not just about doing things, building roads, making things work, having a greater infrastructure... Because we have a government that is doing that for us. But governance isn't only about infrastructure and sorting out financial problems and bringing in new laws and decrees. Government is firstly upon the shoulders of God. Government is about the ways of God being brought into a nation. And Omri had not done that. And now as he's passing, the dynasty continues, he dies and his son, Ahab, comes onto the scene. And we read, or we have just read, about Ahab. Now, what were the ways of Ahab? What were the sins of Ahab? What were the things that he did that were also causing difficulty? Firstly, Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those who had gone before him. Huh. Hardly the sort of epitaph that you want to have. What was your success in life? You know, what did you do? Did you manage to get a degree? Did you manage to do this? Did you get some sort of honor? Did you get an Oscar or whatever? You know, what did you do in your field? What was, it, what was the thing for you? What did you achieve? Here's Ahab being declared. What did he achieve? He did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of the kings that had gone before him. What a joke. He considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam. Well, as we've seen, Jeroboam had corrupted the religious system. Well, it's nothing. We'll carry on with what we're doing. There's no problem there. Corrupted the religious system. Ahab did this. He married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. Now, when we read of Baal, we're automatically thinking, oh, we know Baal naughty. Okay, God good, Baal naughty. That's probably about as far as our thinking really goes. So what does it really mean that he married Jezebel? The issue here is he was a king, and anyway, the Israelites had been told not to marry anybody from any other foreign nations. Now that had gone seriously wrong in the reign of Solomon because he'd got 700 wives, many of them from other nations, which was part of the reason that he had a downfall. But here we are seeing the king, and you'd think the king would be making a holy alliance before God. We'll be seeking to draw in people whose hearts are for God, whose hearts are wanting to worship God. But he obviously encounters this woman, Jezebel. Now, I know we might know about Jezebel, and even that phrase, oh, you're a Jezebel, or whatever. But let's just look at this for a second. Who was Jezebel? Jezebel was the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. So actually... It could be seen on the political scene, he's making a great alliance. 
We've had difficulties with the kingdom of the Sidonians. We've had problems. We want to institute greater trade. We want to actually get rich off the back of this nation because they want some of the goods that are coming from northern Israel. This is a good alliance. Now, what is it about this guy? Ethbal. Why is he called Ethbal? He's called Ethbal because Ethbal means with Baal. You can see that this king had signed up. He was a man who had given himself over to the worship of Baal. That was the forepoint of their society. That was great. That's what they were living under. That's who he was representing. Uh, representing. And now he's saying, hey, marry off my daughter. Ahab, come and have her. At this point, we don't know much about her, but we do know her background because her father was with Baal. Her father had given himself over to the worship of Baal. So now he's giving this unholy alliance with another nation. And Jezebel is being brought into the scene as the queen over Egypt, a queen over northern Israel alongside her husband Ahab. Ahab, not only marrying her and beginning to serve Baal and worship him, you can see how that is advanced because we next read of the fact that he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal. All right, so there's been some public work going on. There's been some public buildings happening here. Samaria's beginning to look like a place that's happening. You're getting new shops, you're getting a new environment, you're getting a new temple, we've got a new God, we've got a new altar in front of that temple. Let's come and worship here. Do you remember the teaching that we had from Nicodemus about altars? What is an altar primarily? An altar is the meeting place of the spiritual realm and the physical realm. It's a place where the spiritual realm meets. And here we have an altar to Baal. This is an altar that is drawing demonic spirits, the power of demonic spirits, into the nation. This is what Ahab is about. He set up the altar for Baal, the temple for Baal. He made an Asherah pole. And he did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than did, any, than did all the kings of Israel before him. What did you do today? I made God angry. The guy's an idiot. What is it that we embrace into our lives? Here we see Ahab embracing this alliance with Jezebel. He thought, I guess, politically, socially, economically, this was a great deal. But you know what? What do we embrace into our lives? What alliances do we make that could be described as, well, in scriptural terms, unholy? But I don't believe that Ahab ever thought of this as being an unholy alliance. What are the people that we associate with? You know, as Christians, we must never forget that we are called to reach out, to go to others, to embrace others, to love others, to have relationship with others, to share Jesus with others, to love them even when they don't love us in return. We're called to do that. But in the process of that, we need to watch out that we don't make ungodly alliances with people. There can be people in our world, in our lives, that perhaps we have too tight an arrangement with. Their lives are not associated with the things of God. Jezebel's life was not associated with the things of God. Did it affect and corrupt Ahab? Yes, it did. Does Jezebel need saving? Yes, she does. Does she need loving? Yes, she does. 
But sometimes we need to watch some of the alliances that we get under. Sometimes we need to think about some of the friendships that we make at school. Some of the friends, it's not that we don't love them or we don't speak to these people, but some of them are corrupted in the ways of God. And that corruption, if we come under their sway, can start to influence, oh, it doesn't matter if I do this. Yeah, I'm going to this party. It doesn't affect me. I'm a Christian. I'm going to be all right. Not necessarily. Because we need to watch out for the unholy alliances that we can make in our lives. We need to make sure that in our lives we're being wise before God and that he is enabling us to make the right connection with the right people. Yes, sometimes it costs to love others. Sometimes we get embarrassed. Sometimes we get hurt. Jesus has never told us to stop doing that. But it's who are we coming under? Whose influences are happening over our lives? As Christians, we only have one God. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is the one that we need to be bringing our lives under. Let me also, having talked about this, the ways of their leaders are getting corrupted because what we're seeing is the leadership, even the previous leadership, now the leadership under Ahab, they're corrupting the ways of the nation. They're bringing things into the nation that are taking the people further away from the purposes of God. They're opening up altars that are literally drawing demonic powers upon the land. And we see this particularly with Baal and with Asherah. Now here's a problem for us. We all know about Baal and Asherah in terms of names. We haven't really got a clue how this affects us today, have we? I haven't. I didn't have. I've done a bit more work on it now. But in truth, Bart, we know it's naughty, nasty, whatever. So we need to understand, what is this Baal worship? What is this Asherah pole? What is all this stuff about? Let me just read something to you. The native religion of the Canaanites, so these are the original inhabitants of the land that we're now talking about. The native religion of the Canaanites centered on El, the male creator God, and his wife Asherah. Baal was the son of their union. Baal later replaced El and became the chief male deity of Canaan. Later, in an act of incest, Baal married his own mother, that is Asherah, who was worshipped as mother goddess and the chief female deity of Canaan. As mother goddess, Asherah was widely worshipped throughout Palestine and Syria. Inscriptions from two locations in southern Palestine suggest that she was also worshipped as the wife of the Hebrew god Yahweh. Exactly how Asherah became associated with the Hebrew god Yahweh is unclear. Certainly the Bible has nothing positive to say about Asherah. Yahweh condemned the destruction of all idols representing Asherah. Nevertheless, the fact that Asherah was worshipped simultaneously as both the wife of Yahweh by the Israelites and the wife of, of Yahweh's number one rival, Baal, by the Canaanites, should make us pause to ponder. Now that little extract which I got uh, just looking into this, it, it explains a little bit of the background. It's very strange and weird and a bit horrible, to be honest with you. We've got this God who suddenly is married to Asherah, Asherah, then they have a child, and then there's, there's now this relationship between the child and the mother, and that was the formation of this Godhead. So you have Baal as the supreme one, Asherah as the, as, the, as the mother. You know how people talk about, oh, mother nature, and there's that sense of something that is overall. This is the sort of adoration that would be given to Asherah. She's the mother of everything. Oh, she's the one who's overall. There's a sense of that. 
But in this, hidden behind it all, there is a sort of sexual deviancy about it. Even in the beginning of that relationship, which is utterly corrupt in any case, but there's a sort of a, a sexuality about it. And people would erect, and I use that word rather embarrassingly, an Asherah pole, to represent some sort of phallic symbol. And there would be a sense in which people would dance around this, or they'd have orgies, or there's some things in sometimes where priests are connected with some sort of sexual things. And that's part of the cultic thing. Not necessarily for everybody, but that was part of, part of a cultic thing that happened around Asherah poles. And meanwhile, Baal was being worshipped as the one who was the fertility god, the one who would provide for us. And don't forget, the mainstay of everybody's economics back at home was how many sheep and cattle they could rear, how many children they could have, how their crops progressed. So the whole idea of, were we going to get a new crop? Was it going to be an abundant crop? Was a serious matter for everybody. We, we disconnect with that now because our work is to do with service industries or IT industries or something like that. And we're involved with things that don't seem to represent the land. We don't need much fertility with my computer chip, necessarily. We don't think of it like that. But that's how they were thinking. So they were worshipping these gods and adoring these gods in the light of that. But nevertheless, where did the idea of these gods come from? It came from the corruption of man's thinking. Because man had moved away from the worship of Almighty God, who was the creator and sustainer and maker of all things, to worshipping a god that wasn't a god. It's only a small g. Baal is not a capital G. He's just a god. And he is there, and he's being worshipped. Okay, so what are we dealing with here? Baal, as I say, is solely the creation of man. The position of God as the creator and sustainer have been lost. And here is Baal, the one who helps us with our fertility, and Asherah is being worshipped with all these sexual acts. Let me just read this extract to you. One current, refined, and subtle manifestation of Baal worship is the cult of self-love. Through a clever manipulation of scripture, the love of self has been transformed into a virtue. In recent years, it has been strenuously taught as a supposed Christian duty. The command to love our neighbor as we love ourselves is twisted into a command to love ourselves. When God taught that we should be loving others and have genuine faith in Christ. The bottom root of all of this Baal worship and Asherah worship is that it centers upon the needs of people and the love and the looking after of themselves. Of themselves. So am I all right? Are my crops going to be all right? Am I going to progress in life? Is my family going to be all right? Can you, this is why we go to Bar, because he helps us with those things. He helps me attain what I need. That's what Baal does. And Asherah, because our lives, naturally, we are sexual beings, because that is part of why we were created to procreate, there is this part of our lives which is a sexual part. It needs to be kept in the boundaries as Christians of what God is asking for us, but generally, sex is part of life. Don't we see that in our culture today? Sex is very much part of life. Is the sexual part of our lives that's being portrayed by our culture corrupted? Absolutely it is. Is there any self-worship, self-love in our society today? Is there? What does it mean to actually love ourselves? What does it look like when we are chiefly concerned 
about our well-being. It means that our time is being allocated along the way that we want it to be allocated. You know what? It's fine. I'm going to go to church. Even for Christians, we're dealing with some of these issues. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to allocate not just one hour or even two. I'm going to be there early and I'm going to leave late. I'm going to allocate three hours to God on a Sunday. But I need to get home now because the Grand Prix is on. Because actually, the Grand Prix is very important to me. And that's happening just after the service. So I must make sure I don't stay too late this morning. Now, I'm not talking about anything wrong with the Grand Prix. I'm issuing a challenge to how we resource our time, how we affect our time, how we use our time. Is our time really free? Have you ever been in a prayer meeting and the prayer meeting finishes at quarter to nine on a Saturday morning? I feel like this. I'm a stickler for time. We're going to finish at quarter two. Prayers seem to be getting a little bit more intense here. And I see it's one minute to quarter two. How does it make me feel? Ah, it's okay. It's okay. It's now five two. Now we've gone ten minutes over. And I'm starting to feel we should have stopped. Why? Because I'm operating under God's timing? Or I'm operating under what I want? What suits me? What I'm fitting into? what my programs are, what my well-being is. My well-being is very concerned about my future. I'm concerned that I'm going to be looked after. I'm concerned for my pension fund. I'm concerned for my children. I'm concerned about their education. I'm concerned about their well-being. I'm concerned about these things because this is what my world is being wrapped up with. These are the things that are very important to me. What am I going to eat? For goodness sake, have we got enough food in the fridge? What is going on? Is Sainsbury's still open? Has Tesco's got a new offer on? What should I be doing there? I'm so tired. Honestly, I haven't had enough sleep. I'm very concerned about my sleep. I'm very concerned about my food. I'm very concerned about the fact that autumn is coming and my wardrobe is completely not ready. What am I going to do? It's right for you to laugh. You don't have the same concerns as me. My well-being here. My well-being in centres around my entertainment. I've been working hard all week. You know, I've had to work hard, yes, just to get that food on your plates, just to provide for those clothes on your backs. Another pair of shoes, that colour, what are you on about? All of these things are going on and suddenly it's Friday night and it's my entertainment and now I want to switch off because this is my time. There is an adoration in our lives primarily of ourselves. What was going on in northern Israel in this time was the adoration of people's own lives. It suited them to serve Baal. Does it suit the people of our time to go to the shops whenever? The shops are making it more accommodating. Can we do this? When we had the recent riots, what are some of the things that started to get spoken of? The problem with our society is we are a materialistic society. All we have our reasoning in is materialism. We could say, all we are seeking to serve is Baal. And down at the lap dancing club, where there's a pole, there are girls even now dancing around the Asherah pole. And there are guys who are queuing up to go and see. And we think that our society has not become corrupt. We think that the church is okay. What are the issues that we're facing? Northern Israel, there was a corruption in the religious system. There was a corruption 
that the leaders were leading the people into. And I know that it might seem a little far-fetched to actually just say, okay, Baal worship is this worship of self. And I was thinking of this, and I just say this as a slight aside. I think, okay, what, what happened back in the days of Solomon? Am I really off track here? Am I really off track that this isn't actually what's happening is man is developing himself, so-called self-development, but he's really just trying to find ease and comfort and find out the things that he wants. And if you go back to the life of Solomon, what do you see at the end of his life? Here he is, even in Ecclesiastes, he's saying like, you know, I need to pursue pleasure. I need to pursue pleasure. Ecclesiastes 2 says this, this is Solomon speaking. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. What does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the days of their lives. There is the influence of the gods of Baal that was coming into his life. He was becoming corrupted. And you can see it, can't you? Why? Wasn't under David, Israel was a nation that served God. There around the temple, there were worshippers worshipping 24-7. He'd established a structure of worship in the temple that was continually praising God. He had established an altar of the Lord that was continually drawing the presence of heaven into Jerusalem. And now we get to his son. He's thinking, like, what else is there in life? Come on, there must be more to life than just going to the church. There must be more to life than just praising God. The other day when I was praying, I slight aside, I know, when we pray, we really do need to declare the things of God. We need to start with the adoration and worship of his name. And as I was coming to that, I felt a bit tired and I thought, God, you are great. God, you are mighty. And I thought, God, I'm getting a bit tired of just this declaration. And a scripture came to my mind, in heaven, where the elders are, they bow down before the throne, continually declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is yet to come. They never get bored in heaven of declaring God. We need to make sure that we never get bored on earth of proclaiming his name and declaring who he is. We need to focus on him. Solomon had got lost in this idea of there must be more. There must be more to life than this. Let me search for it. Let me seek for it. He started marrying these women. He married Sidonians. Oh, that's interesting. Bringing in Baal worship. He married these other people, bringing in Asherah poles. He started to embrace the Moabite women, bringing in their own godly, ungodly ways. And this is all this corruption, all centered around this pursuit of what my mind can tell me what is good. So when I thought about that, I could say, yes, I can see this. You know, in this day, what was going on is almost akin to what we see today. Let's make our nation great by having the best roads, the best facilities, the best entertainment, the best financial resources that we can. 
Which of the countries in the Western world isn't trying to pursue those things? I would say this. Is there the adoration of Baal and Asherah in our day? Absolutely. In fact, it is hugely widespread. And we knew it not. Isn't that one of the greatest schemes of the enemy? To say like, wow, I never understood. The ways of God have got corrupted. The ways of their leaders have got corrupted. And thirdly, and possibly the most sad, the people, the general public, were lost. The general public were lost. Now I'm going to jump over and read a little passage from 1 Kings 18, so you can see this. Now 1 Kings 18 comes into the scene where they're up Mount Carmel, and Elijah, this great scene where Elijah is going to call upon the fire of heaven to actually... uh, ignite his own um, sacrifice. But if we break into it, 1 Kings 18, verse 21. Well, I'll read verse 20. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Verse 21. Elijah went before the people. This is the general public. He is now speaking to all the people gathered there. Elijah went before the people and said... How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And the next sentence says this. But the people said nothing. The people were lost. They didn't know how to answer. They didn't know who to serve. They didn't know who was the real God. They didn't know which way to turn. They didn't know what to think. The people said nothing. And them saying nothing to us says everything. What if we were to issue the same challenge in the high street of Bromley today? If the Lord is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. Everybody's going to sit there thinking, like, we don't know what you're talking about. This nutter on about. That's funny, isn't it? So am I proclaiming that if we'd go say the same thing today, we're going to get a similar reaction? I think yes. Because the people are lost. The people of our day and age, do they know that there is a living God? Do they know his name? Do they know his ways? Are his ways being declared in our lives. As a people, are we drawing them to the presence of God? Or as a people, have we got so hung up in the system of our world that the worship of the idolatry of the land has infected the hearts of the See what I read about when I was talking about Baal and Asherah, how it was even said that Asherah was viewed by some, and this is corrupt thinking, I know, but it's uh, it's what was viewed by some as being the mother of Yahweh. How displaced can you get when the king of kings, the lord of all creation, the God who is behind everything, now becomes the son of this Asherah? He isn't the one behind it all. How blasphemous. 
Well, what blasphemy do we bring before God even today in the way that we live our lives? You see, when you read of this, when you read of the fact that Ahab did more evil than all the kings before him, you just think that I would certainly think, well, the guy's an idiot. He should have followed God. He didn't know what he was doing. But when you start to look at his life and you say, no, 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 he was a great leader. He was a great leader. He did some great things. He was making political alliances. He was establishing foundations for the nation. He was building trade routes. He was doing all this other stuff. Does that sound bad? Does that sound like somebody who was actually doing some good for the nation? Yes, it does. And that is why even today, whether you like the Labour government or the Liberal Democrats or the Conservative Party or whoever you're serving, even though we have some biases in this church towards certain parties because of people we know, The government of this nation is corrupt and they cannot lead us unless they are saved and transformed by the power of God. Fact. Don't put your hope in the government. But do what we are asked to do. To pray for our government. That we may have men who are being raised up It doesn't matter whether these people say they go to church. Going to church is not going to make you right with God. Having a personal relationship with God, with Jesus Christ, knowing your own sins forgiven, and walking with him daily is the beginning of an established relationship with God. And we need to concentrate on that. Does our government at the moment need our prayers? Absolutely they do. Is David Cameron a bad man? No, he is not. But he needs more enlightening from heaven. And we need to pray for him. So here, as we're now looking at this, what is the scene? So we're turning over from 1 Kings 16. And when we're reading, Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. I know there's a couple of other verses. We just turn over. And now Elijah the Tishbite from Gilead says to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few days, next few years at my word. What is it we're breaking into? We're breaking into the revelation of a man of God who has come because he has had enough of the things he sees in his nation. Now I described him, and it would be interesting to look back at some pictures to see how others describe him as a man of God, of some stature and authority. But let me just leave you with this. James 5 verse 17 says this. Elijah was a man just like us. So you can forget all your illusions to how big he was, how strong he was, how authoritative he was in God. We need to come back to an understanding that he was a man who was standing before his nation and he could see that his nation was at a precipice. His nation had lost their way spiritually. His nation was embracing the culture of self-worship and the people of the land who were part of that nation did not know who God was. And here was a man 
just like you, just like me, who is prepared to stand up and to say enough is enough. And that's why Elijah bursts onto the scene. Because we have a God who is looking for a people who will say enough is enough. We have a God whose heart is for the nation, whose heart is for the United Kingdom, whose heart is for Bromley, whose heart is for our schools, our colleges, our hospitals, our government, whose heart is towards them but he sees the worship of the foreign idols that is going on. And he needs a people who are prepared to say, enough is enough. And you know what? When we can start to see that, there's no way that we can discount ourselves. There's no way that we can say, I'm too weak. There's no way to say that I'm unspiritual enough. There's no way to say I can't make it because Elijah was a man. He wasn't a woman, obviously, but he was just like us. He felt frail. Perhaps next week we'll go on to look a little bit more. Because it says in James, he was a man just like us. He prayed. Hey, perhaps that could give us some encouragement. Earnestly. He prayed earnestly. Perhaps we need to look a little bit more about our prayer life and about the earnestness of our prayer life if we're going to see a change in our nation. I'm going to finish there. I hope that's just given us a bit of a scene, given us a bit of an introduction, given us a bit of understanding about what's going on, some of the issues that we're going to be dealing with, some of the issues that Elijah was dealing with, and the way that God helped this man. But I want us to raise ourselves up in our thinking. So easy to think, let's leave it to somebody else. Listen, every person, has been called by God for his purposes. If you are a Christian, you have started aligning yourself to the purpose that God has for you. As we surrender to him, as we yield to him, as we start to see that actually our lives is so bound up by our desires, our needs, our wants, our timetable, our things our concerns, then perhaps we need to say, okay, God, I need to surrender more to you. I need to let you have more of my life. I need you to have let, more, let you have more ways into my life that I can be the person that you've called me to be. I declare over you, this is a room of nation changers. I don't say that out of my strength or even my thoughts. It's because if God be for us, who can be against us? This is what we have been singing. We're not singing these words just because it's a catchy tune and it gets a little bit of impetus. We are declaring the truth to the powers and principalities. The powers of Bromley need to take note that their time is over. The kings of Bromley shall be dethroned and we shall see the king of kings taking his place. I prophesy it. I declare it over Bromley in the name of Jesus. I declare it over your lives in the name of Jesus. Arise, people of God. Arise. The nation has been corrupted. 
The religion of our nation has been corrupted. The leaders of our nation don't know the way to go. Their thinking, their ways has been corrupted. The word of God says in Proverbs, righteousness exalts a nation. Righteousness exalts a nation. And that's what we want to see, a return of our land to righteousness. Let's just turn for a few minutes while the band come up. Let's turn to prayer. Let's just say to God, God, I'm here. I'm ready for you. I'm ready for what you want, oh God. Change my heart. Change my life, oh God. Father, we need you. We need you. Sovereign God, we need you. Just bring your own words before God, but present yourself to him. Don't be afraid to call out. Don't be afraid to pray aloud. For the more that we pray out, the more it encourages others. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or you're after more information about Bromley Town Church, do visit our website, www.bromleytownchurch.com.